0: We are back, and in this hour, we're talking about America's drug problem. America's drug overdose crisis is out of control, and despite a bipartisan desire to combat it that we saw in 2018, we are finding that addiction-fighting programs are failing. Uh, In this hour, we're going to talk to Dr. Kara Poland. She's a nationally recognized board-certified addiction medicine doctor About why America can't get its arms around this crisis that is claiming the lives of so many people, both in rural and urban communities throughout this country. Welcome and thank you, Dr. Poland, for having me in this hour, and thank you for the work that you do on this really, really important topic. I want to start by just kind of level setting and giving uh, listeners and viewers some of the magnitude. Of our fentanyl and opioid crisis and problem in this country?
1: You know, I always tell people that when we look at those numbers that you mentioned, that over 100,000 people died last year of, um, an, of, a, of an overdose, that's just an overdose, right? When we look at it, that would be like saying um, for people that have hypertension, for people that have hypertension, that the only cause of death that we are going to talk about is if they die of a heart attack and not if they die of a stroke, not if they die of kidney disease, not if we're only taking one piece of the puzzles. And and that's the number that we say. So when we say over 105,000 people, it's actually more than that because we're not taking into account other causes of death, like somebody who dies of uh, of an infection related to their injection drug use. Um, So the magnitude of the problem is just astronomically huge. And we know that in terms of the workforce to treat people with a substance use disorder, for every one addiction medicine physician, there's 7,000 patients. And to put that into some context, for every one cardiologist, there's about 2,500 patients. And we know that it can be really hard to get in to see a cardiologist. So imagine it's, you know, two to three times harder to get in to see your addiction medicine specialist.
0: So we know that fentanyl is the leading cause of overdose deaths in America. And you just put it in context that, you know, it's not just that overdose number, it's all of those other reasons uh, that, you know, people die as a result of fentanyl use. Uh, Also, I think it's important to note that fentanyl is a powerful synthetic opioid that's 50 times stronger than heroin and up to hundred times stronger than morphine. Uh, I've seen some stats that say that the majority of fentanyl related deaths are accidental because of counterfeit prescription pills are being laced with the lethal doses. Uh, talk to us about that. I mean, because we, we hear a lot about people overdosing because they took something that they didn't know was laced. Uh, with fentanyl, so they may take again these counterfeit prescription pills. How big of an issue is this uh, problem, Dr. Polward?
1: So the the drug dealers, the drug cartels, have gotten really good at mimicking pharmaceutical based opioids. And so when somebody may think that they're getting oxycontin or they think they're getting, you know, even an Adderall, um so so even when they think that they're getting something like a stimulant, not not intending to have any opioids, it can be laced with fentanyl. So we definitely have seen people who have died even on first try of using, you know, of using Adderall, say, you know, a, an 18-year-old child who's in undergraduate school and decides that they're going to take an Adderall um to study for a big exam. Um, and they die because it actually does have fentanyl in it. So it's it's really scary out there. Um, you have to be you kind of have to be on your toes there. Uh, Many drug safety programs or harm reduction programs um, offer testing of drug supply uh, to ensure that people know what they're getting if they are using. Um, But, you know, we we really in the field of addiction want to focus on prevention as much as as much as possible.
0: So, okay, you just made a great point that a student in school may be thinking they're taking some kind of what? maybe commonly known as an upper, something that's going to help them stay away so they can study 24 Mm -hmm. hours, you know, cram for some exam and it's laced with fentanyl. Fentanyl is a class of opioids, but fentanyl on its own is often prescribed, right? If you have a car accident or you have some serious injury, you're in the hospital, you're in a lot of pain, is fentanyl a drug that is still being prescribed for pain, you know, uh, reduction or pain management?
1: Yes. Uh, fentanyl is, is a, what we call a schedule two medication, which means that there are, um, medical use, known medical uses. Um, and so it is sometimes used in, um, things like anesthesia because it, it has, it's, it has what we call a short half life, so it doesn't last super long in the body. So if we need to wake somebody up from anesthesia, we can. Um, it's also used, as you mentioned, for pain medication. Um, it is used in um, end of life care and palliative care uh, as well. It comes in, it comes in like a sort of it lo- almost looks like a, a lollipop or a sucker um, type of type of thing. So for somebody who's end of life and they can't swallow, it can be kind of rubbed in their mouth to give them some pain control. So it does have medicinal. You know properties, but the problem with the illicit supply is they change one or two things, one or two atoms, one or two little pieces on that molecule, and it changes um, how potent it is. In and and so it it can be, you know, fentanyl plus in terms of what we get pharmaceutically. And and when you when you get a pharmaceutical grade medication, it you know there's a vetting process, there's a there's a you know monitoring process that the FDA does. There's in terms of the manufacturer. So when I you know as a doctor when I you know if I were to rate a prescription for fentanyl, I rate a dose a route amount, a frequency, a number that of tablets that are, or a number of doses that you get, whether or not there's refills and that's all you know kind of closely uh, closely monitored over time. Um, so so it's you know it's, it's very different because you just, one you don't know what potency fentanyl you're getting because we have mo- many different synthetic fentanyls and you don't know what it what it might be mixed in you know or are when when something's manufactured in a manufacturing plant that is monitored and 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 you know is subject to random uh, monitoring by the FDA uh, there, there's a there's an uh, there there's a level of um of professionalism, right? And when you have a when you have a drug dealer who maybe is not just dealing stimulants but also dealing opioids, maybe has some marijuana as well. They're they're not sitting there making sure that those piles are separate on the table, right? So you know, there's more likely for unintentional and intentional mixing. Um, I know in my area we see uh, about seventy percent of our illegal or illicit um, marijuana actually is contaminated with another drug.
0: And. Um- Okay, that's a good point because oftentimes people think marijuana is obviously a much safer uh, drug than you know taking any kind of pill or using heroin. And you're saying in your area, lots of the marijuana, or seventy percent of the marijuana that you see in your area, is laced with fentanyl, laced
1: with some other drug. So whether that's fentanyl or methamphetamine, um, or you know cocaine, it's it's got something other than just marijuana in it. For the illicit supply, I am a recreationally legal state, as well as um, as I know California is. So, um, the one, you know, the things that you buy from a from a from a marijuana store um, are usually safer.
0: And one of the terms that that I've heard in doing research for this show is uh, researchers have deemed this a fourth wave of the mm-hmm. opioid crisis. What does that mean? Why are they calling this period right now a fourth wave?
1: So we had, we have, we've had multiple kind of things that have happened. We had a wave where it was pre, where the addiction crisis was predominantly driven by prescription medication. We had a wave where it was prominently, predominantly driven by, you know, heroin. Um, and then we had a wave where it was prominently driven by these synthetic fentanyls. And in this fourth wave, we're seeing, um, fentanyl along with stimulants, um, as being the thing that is, uh, that is killing people. So it's that kind of polysubstance use where it's more than one substance at a time that is being used.
0: And, you know, we, we, if you watch television or watch dramas, you know, you, you get this impression that all of these drugs are coming into the U.S. from foreign countries and that, you know, they're responsible for this flood flooding of the market of fentanyl and these other opioids. Is that true?
1: That's definitely true in part. We do have a lot that comes from overseas. We do have some that is manufactured here in the United States. Um, but the other the other thing to think about is why is there this drive to substance use in the United States? And um, a lot of us in the addiction field have been talking for you know decades about the influence of isolation and loneliness on um, the drug epidemic. Uh, we we live in the you know the United States has kind of was built upon this. Independent. If you work hard enough, if you do your job, you will be successful. Um, and when we look at some other cultures and throughout you know throughout the world, we know that um, like in in Europe, they're very kind of family centered. Um, in Africa, they're very uh, kind of community, small groups or tribe centered. Um, and then if we look in kind of the Asian com- countries, they're they're larger community based centric, more like village, more like villages or or uh, you know is. Is kind of where their identity is. So um, there's more um, there's more responsiveness to each other, um, and more social responsibility for the community and for each other than we see in the United States. So there's very famous um, researcher in the addiction field. His name's Bruce Alexander, um, who really studied the effect of isolation on. On substance use. And, and his research really shows that um, the more community we have, the more pers- interpersonal connections we have, the more kind of responsibility to a greater good that we feel, the less, the lower our risk for addiction.
0: Well, and then what about the role of over prescribing prescription opioids? Because we also uh, have seen that, you know, in several documentaries. Uh, and again, if you read about this crisis, we often hear about doctors being the drivers in some cases because they are over prescribing. And, you know, there are being these pill mills in places like Florida and other parts of the country where people where it's known that you can go and get, you know, these prescriptions for mm-hmm. opioids in many cases when they're not warranted.
1: Absolutely. It's scary. Um, you know, as a physician, I I sometimes wonder how somebody or when somebody reaches that, you know, that moral point where they're prescribing unnecessarily to to people. Um, we we've had some national guidelines that have come out from entities like the CDC um, to uh, reduce prescribing. Many states have enacted legislature to require. Um, lower prescriptions. Uh, we have prescription drug monitoring programs where you can see where a patient is getting prescriptions for, from for controlled substances in, um, every state now. Uh, so there, so there has been more, um, both government regulation that has, that has reduced, uh, the amount of prescribing and also kind of uh, these these guidelines that have come kind of from within the house of medicine um, as well to help reduce some of that. So when we talked earlier, uh, that was one of the waves of the opioid epidemic. Um, so, you know, 10 years ago or so, I used to say um, there was a statistic at the time that over 80% of people who used illicit opioids had started with prescription opioids. I can't say that anymore, which is a good thing. Um, but unfortunately... Uh, That hasn't stopped the opioid epidemic, that hasn't stopped the isolation epidemic, that hasn't, um, you know, that hasn't had the impact that we that we wanted it to have.
0: What would that number be today? It's not 80 percent that are addicted started with, you know, with legal prescription medication. Is it more like 50 percent or where is that number?
1: You know, I actually don't know any at, at this point. I apologize.
0: Oh, no problem. You know, it begs the question about if you are injured, if you have an injury, if you have any kind of medical condition, should you even take or accept uh, a prescription for uh, fentanyl or an opioid because of its addictive qualities?
1: I think you have to be super aware of that. And and I think we have to, as a, as a society and as a community, um, Remember that these medications are extremely powerful, um, and we need to respect that and only, um, and, and only use them at kind of the lowest possible effective dose for the shortest duration with the understanding that if this is turns into a chronic issue, that being on opioids in the long term can actually make your pain worse, not better. Um, and so really just it goes back to that respect for the power of these of these drugs as medications um, and really using them again for the shortest possible amount of time.
0: I I guess, again, I'm I'm just thinking about all the studies I've seen, all the shows that I've seen on television uh, about how drugs are prescribed into what communities. Is there any data out there that looks at how these prescription drugs are uh, made available in different types of communities, whether it's separated by race or separated by socioeconomics? Because, again, some of the documentaries and stories suggest that, you know, rich white people in certain communities Mm -hmm. are oftentimes given certain kinds of opioids where, you know, poor people, people of color in certain communities uh, are less likely to have access to those prescription meds. Is there any data around that?
1: No, that's exactly right. That is what the data shows is that uh, persons of color, persons um, that are in lower socioeconomic classes uh, are less likely to receive medication and particularly um uh people in higher socioeconomics who are white and female are the most likely to receive um pain, both pain medications as well as anti-anxiety medications like benzodiazepines such as uh, Xanax
0: but what about you know the use of these illicit opioids in black and brown communities because we know You know, in the the 90s, there was this crack epidemic that really Mm -hmm. ravaged black communities. Are we seeing the opioid crisis have that same, uh, you know, deleterious effect on the black community as we saw in the uh, era of the crack?
1: unfortunately we are actually seeing that black communities and brown communities are um, have increased rates of of opioid use compared to um, compared to white communities so there, there the a number of black uh, black people who are using um, has has increased at a higher rate in recent years than in um, than in white communities so what started as as truly predominantly a white epidemic in terms of the opioid opioid crisis um, has spread beyond that, um, into our black and brown communities.
0: Wow. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about treatment and I know there's a pilot program in California for stimulant users, uh, some controversial, uh, treatments that involve the use of financial incentives. I want to get your opinion on those treatment programs and what we should be doing as a country to combat the opioid, uh, you know, epidemic that is ravishing communities across this country. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back with Dr. Kara Poland. She is a nationally recognized addiction specialist. And we're talking about the opioid overdose death crisis in this country. And we know that uh, these overdoses jolted the country in the mid-20-teens, but yet they continue to be a major health crisis. And we used to think of this as just a rural problem impacting white and Caucasian people, like I said, in these rural communities. But there's been a lot of data out that says that this is not just a white problem, that opioid overdose deaths severely impact African-Americans and other people of color in urban communities. Uh, A lot of that data hasn't, quite frankly, I I think, been highlighted enough. Uh, And when we look across cities like Baltimore, Pennsylvania, uh, and places like Washington, D.C., the numbers are staggering. Uh, Dr. Poland, what is leading this Really disproportionate number of African Americans who are now dying from opioid overdoses.
1: I don't think we know all of the details of why, but some of the some of some of the some of the uh, reasons that we are seeing this is because of. Uh, the historical oppression um, that we have of that we have of some of, of some of these communities um, and the uh, that has led to isolation that has led to a lot of uh, significant mental health issues uh, Concerns that that you know really do predate and postdate the COVID crisis. Um, for very uh, for very rational and obvious reasons, um, there there is a lot of mistrust uh, with the medical community uh, by particularly our African American and Black community um, in terms of you know historical traumas that have happened to that community at the hands of healthcare. Um, so there there may be less uh, outreach to mainstream healthcare. For treatment and help, um, but one of the strengths that our Black communities have is that they are very community-based. We talked a little bit earlier about that isolation um, and that kind of individualism in the United States more more generally, but we do see that in our Black communities there is more of a picture of community um, responsibility and community support uh, it, in in those groups, and hopefully we can harness that um, as we uh, develop new treatment programs for people uh, of color. We also need to remember that the treatment programs that work in one community that maybe work in a rural population are simply going to be different than they are for an urban population. Um, And and what works for one culture or one community within um, our nation may not work for all communities within our nation. And being mindful of that and creating you know, person-centered, community-centered plans for our treatment is going to be necessary to truly impact the uh, the crisis, and, and one thing that it, that has changed, that has become better, is if you look at kind of grant opportunities or funding opportunities from the National Institute of Health, which is the uh, largest funder for academic research in the United States. Uh, we're seeing we're seeing that there are more diversity uh, based grants that require you to kind of think about how this might impact how your program. Uh, or your grant, what you're going to do with that money is going to impact different types of populations. Um, and so, so we're kind of seeing a little bit of a pivot there, uh, which I think is a good thing to um, really look at different population-based health rather than focusing, rather than trying to create a one-size-fits-all for all communities.
0: Yeah, I, I just want to really read for the listeners and viewers these startling statistics statistics about Black deaths and overdoses related to opioids. Because again, this crisis was presented to us in the 90s as something that was predominantly impacting white people in rural communities. Uh, And now we know that a million people uh, have died of overdoses since the 1990s. Again, the the face of those deaths oftentimes were, were white Uh, white middle-class victims, but now black and brown people struggling with long-term addictions and unfortunately too few resources. And by some reports during uh, the last 10 years, opioid and stimulant deaths have increased 575% among black Americans. And in 2019, the overall drug overdose death rate among black people exceeded that, exceeded that of whites for the first time. 36.8% versus 31.6 per 1,000. And again, with the addition of fentanyl and synthetic opioids that are 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine, uh, some reports say that Black men, Black men in particular, uh, over 55, who survived for decades, even some with heroin addiction, are now dying at rates four times greater than people of other races in that age group. So I just think we don't hear enough about the changing face of these deaths. And a lot of people still probably think that these addictions are just happening in Kentucky and again in other, you know, parts of the country that they associate with being rural and white. But the reality is, since 2019, the death rates amongst Blacks, uh, you know, has begun to exceed that of whites. And like so many other crises in this country, it's all about racial inequalities, racial inequities. When we talk about treatment, and uh, let, let's, let's move on to that, because there's some controversial treatments that are out there. But again, when you look at reports, the biggest thing you hear about treatment as it relates to black communities is that there's just not enough access. There aren't enough treatment programs, treatment centers. Uh, And as you said, there are treatment programs many times that don't really center, you know, black people. So talk to us about what are the gold standard treatment programs that if we could wave a magic wand should be in every black community
1: so we would want something that is community responsive right something that the community helps the that the community that we're serving as the healthcare system meets with that community so that we know that it is it, it has the resources that that are needed in that community whether that's by doing focus groups or understanding what the needs of that um, of what that area are in terms of kind of those social determinants of health, um, access to, you know, if you have to make a decision between purchasing your um, medication or buying food for your children, well, you're going to buy food for your children. So um, is, are there enough uh, resources for people who don't have enough food? Cause we know that one in six Americans doesn't have enough food. So that's going to walk into your clinic every day. Right. Um, so we need to kind of make sure those social determinants of health are, um, are, tr- are, responsive and and available in that community and then we have to make sure that our doctors are culturally responsive culturally appropriate with that community um, and and kind of speaking the language of the community if that makes sense we don't want doctors coming in from ivory towers using um, using jargon and telling people what to do we want the person to be well the person in treatment to be the one responsible for helping build that plan um, in terms of the gold standard for medical treatment for opioid use disorder that is the availability of one of the of of all three of the FDA approved medications to treat opioid um, overdose deaths, I do want to know that there is a study um, that showed that the only way to reduce the outcome of death um, with opioid use disorder is to either be prescribed or. Um, A buprenorphine or to be a participant in a methadone program. So buprenorphine and methadone are the only two ways that we actually reduce the outcome of death. Um, Injectable naltrexone or Vivitrol, there weren't enough people in the study to know if there was a reduction in the outcome of death. Um, And then things like counseling alone or abstinence-based programs are not proven to reduce the outcome of death. Um, So we want to make sure that there is the availability of medications, particularly to treat uh, opioid use disorder. You mentioned earlier uh, some of the work around contingency management that is being done in California. That is the only studied way uh, proven to improve the outcomes for people that have a stimulant use disorder. So cocaine or methamphetamine. Um, And so that's what those programs are intended um, are intended to uh, to address. and and uh, we use kind of that uh,
0: contingency. Why are those programs in CalFAT contingency management program? Why is that considered controversial?
1: Um, because some people don't think it's appropriate for us to pay people to be compliant with their medical treatment. Um, and so we'll explain we're-
0: how the program
1: works. So with contingency management, you give people um, kind of small monetary rewards. Sometimes sometimes they're actually in the, uh, the original contingency management was they would give people coupons for like McDonald's Big Macs or French fries or things like that. So, you know, not not a high value in dollar amount, um, but, you know, that has other health issues. So we we stopped doing as much of that. So now a lot of programs use tickets and then they have a drawing for something like an, an iPad or or an iPhone or a, you know, or a a gift card for a local restaurant, something to kind of incentivize people to um, come and they receive a ticket um, when they have a urine drug screen that is negative for stimulants, or when they, you know, when they attend their counseling sessions, when they engage in the program in different ways.
0: So the thinking is, you have an addiction, you should want to get clean, and the state should not be paying you money, whether it's a dollar or $5 or $20 to do something that is going to benefit your own health. Is that the thing?
1: That's kind of, that's definitely the thinking, but we also have to, you know, what the, the counter argument is also that we would spend much more money uh, in in treating the complications of having a substance use disorder, not to mention the societal costs of, you know, the the fact that there's higher more morbidity, higher mortality, you know, reduced ability to be a contributing member of society, often people that have a substance use disorder over time. Um, when they have an actual substance use disorder, they lose, One of the hallmarks of it is they lose some of their social um, responsibilities, and that may include being able to work. So we lose some of that um, social kind of capital that we that we use as a country as well.
0: When we come forward, I want to talk about uh, these disparities that many Black communities still report as it relates to being addicted to opioids versus being addicted to crack, because there are Black folks that say still, uh, if you call a drug treatment program and say you are addicted to crack, you're going to get one response versus if you acknowledge that you are addicted to opioids. Uh, When we come forward, KPLA Talk 1580. We are back and we're talking about this nationwide crisis, particularly a crisis in the Black community of opioid overdose deaths. And we know, uh, Dr. Poland, that this nation historically has been reluctant to treat addiction as a health care issue rather than a criminal justice one. And we know more than uh, we know that this has particularly been the issue in Black communities, particularly during the 1990s uh, with crack cocaine. And we saw these incredibly harsh sentences that were meted out for African-Americans who were caught up in the criminal justice system and accused of any kind of, uh, you know, drug dealings. Folks were going to jail for literally 20, 30, 40 years uh, when they had addictions. And, you know, there's a sense that when opioid became a crisis, particularly in rural, white parts of the country, you know, the country was ready to treat it as a health uh, condition rather than as a criminal justice issue. But here we are now with Black, People still feeling as if they cannot gain access to treatment. And some studies out there that saying that black patients are half as likely to be referred to uh, treatment programs as white patients and that they still face criminal charges and a criminal justice system uh, because of addiction at far greater rates than white people. How do we change that?
1: We have to change that from the ground up. We have to change some of the sentencing requirements. We have to um, work towards auditing how our criminal justice system functions and works. We know that uh, black men, uh, regardless of what the crime is, are more likely to be found guilty than white men. Um, and, and, uh, that has been pervasive in our society. Uh, and so we need to address, uh, we need to address some of those root causes. Uh, we need to hopefully change some of these, uh, sentencing laws, some of these minimum sentencing laws, as you were referencing, uh, disproportionately impacted black communities where, um, crack cocaine was more, uh, was more common. They, uh, the sentencing for crack cocaine was much, uh, harsher than it was, uh, uh, for powder cocaine, um, and which was more common in white communities. Um, and there, there uh, have been statements made uh, previously, you know, decades ago, uh, from people that were responsible for kind of the um, upbringing of the war on drugs that it was intended to disproportionately affect um, marginalized communities. Um, and so we need to reverse that. We need to reverse that. We need to acknowledge that. We need to go back and look at some of the sentencing that has happened in the to the people that are currently incarcerated. Um, we cannot incarcerate our way out of the um out of the opioid crisis. Um, jails should not be a predominant uh place to get treatment. Um we as a healthcare system uh nationwide need to elevate uh The treatment of addiction. Make sure that it becomes part of just the general education for all of our healthcare providers, um, from you know doctors and nurses to social workers, um, and make sure that it is just part of mainstream medicine. Um, We know that addiction functions um, most similarly to a chronic disease. If we look at the relapse rates for um, diabetes, hypertension, and asthma, um, in relation to substance use disorder, they um, have the same. They have the same rate of, of relapse, of return to, you know, kind of pre-treatment status, whether you're looking at diabetes, hypertension, asthma, or a substance use disorder. So when we walk into that room with a person with a substance use disorder, we don't want to call it a treatment failure. We don't want to say, oh, well, clearly this doesn't work for you. We want to find out what happened, right? What can we do to better support you? Where, where did, you know, where did we in this partnership with you? So we as a team, team, not you versus me, um, where, where did it go wrong, right? Like, how can we better support you? Do you need a higher level of care? Do you need more supports? Do you need different supports? Was it something that happened, right? Things things that happen in our life can cause stress and stress is, leads to, you know, you're more common to relapse, whether it's on, whether it's your diabetes and you stop following that carbohydrate diet, right? Um, or it's a substance use disorder and you cope with, you know, a, a major life crisis that, you know such as like the death of a parent or a grandparent or a child um, maybe with eating unhealthily if you have diabetes but you might cope with that by using opioids if you have a substance use disorder and we need to equalize that in healthcare and just know that our job as my job as a physician is to support my patients to live the healthiest life that they can through whatever means that they have at their disposal when they're ready for those different interventions and to try to Kind of move them toward that readiness for change.
0: Well, I am very, very grateful to you, Doctor, for the work that you're doing for you know recognizing the disparities in our healthcare system and uh the disparities in the treatment of people who are substance uh you know who are addicted to these deadly substances. But I have to tell you I'm not very hopeful. In fact I, I'm a little sad and depressed Uh, With this conversation, not because of anything you said, you've been wonderful, but just looking at all this data, because we know that when something takes on the characteristic that it impacts Black communities more than white communities, like, you know, our homeless crisis that we have across this country, and now this opioid crisis, it it just, you know, the, the pervasive racism and systemic racism that we have in all of our institutions suggests that the intense you know, attention and the resources and dollars that perhaps were poured into this when this was thought to be a white crisis, now mm-hmm. that it's taken on, you know, a face of Black America, or now that Blacks are dying at greater rates and getting addicted at greater rates. I, I just question what what kind of efforts we are going to see by the government uh, to really pour the kind of resources into the medical system, into treatment centers, into communities that, are needed to combat this. These numbers are startling. This switch, you know, this 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 shift from uh, this predominantly impacting white rural middle class people and rural communities to now, uh, for the first time, seeing higher rates of drug overdoses from opioids in the black community is is really really disheartening. So uh, you got about. I don't know, 60 seconds. Tell me something really positive to give me hope that this country is going to do the right thing and really try to save lives now that this uh, epidemic is no longer just impacting white folks.
1: The American Society of Addiction Medicine has a series of public policy statements specifically to racial inequities. Um, I, I am the current chair of the Public Policy Rating Committee, but I was not the chair when these policies came out, just to be fully transparent. Um, but the American Society of Addiction Medicine is the largest physician organization in the nation. It's kind of the AMA, the American Medical Association, of for, specifically for the subspecialty of addiction medicine. Um, and so we use those statements for the advocacy that we do on the Hill for the advocacy that, um, that we do at a national level as well as at a local level. Um, so hopefully that, and that is a resource for anyone in any community to be able to take to their legislature to say, They, you know, to point to and say, these are changes that we need. And I encourage all of your listeners to reach out to their legislature, because for each person who reaches out to their legislature, it literally counts for thousands of citizens voices. So the more we do that, we are at a unique time where uh, we have these opioid, um, these opioid settlement dollars, each state got a certain allocation, um, and it goes to communities as well as to states So reaching out to your local community officials, your county commissioners, your um, your health departments, as well as your um, state legislata- l- legislators, um, is something that we can do. That we can do as citizens to rally around this crisis um, and make sure that they're hearing that the Black communities and the communities of color, our native communities that have also been disproportionately affected, get a disproportionately high number of those dollars in order to in order to create and to in order to build equity into our systems in order to make sure that treatment is available.
0: Well said. Thank you so much, Dr. Poland. Again, appreciate the work that you're doing on this issue. We are out of time, but such an important conversation. Uh, Again, thank you for the work that you're doing. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers in the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580.